<clears throat> the coming, of course, in the Old Testament of the Messiah was first prophesied way back. We looked a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that great pivotal text, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between her seed, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. If you, under, if you want to understand the Old Testament saints, you better start here at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Because these Old Testament saints, they look forward with in faith and in expectation to the coming of the promised seed who would bruise Satan's head. And that's all in the context of what had happened in the Garden of Eden where Satan had come in and persuaded our first parents uh, to sin and to disobey the law of God. And so the entire history of redemptive prophecy opens up for mankind when it needed it most at Genesis 3 and verse 15. These Old Testament saints, they took the word, they took this word from God and they believed in it and they looked to the Messiah who would come at some future date. And that's why the Jews were so particular about all of those long genealogies. Because they were looking for the promised saint who was the promised Messiah to come. The New Testament saints looking back. They placed their faith in the Messiah who has come. And the one who's coming again. But I would say to you tonight with great assurance, it's the same Christ. Whether it be the Christ of prophecy or of history, it's the same Christ. The Old Testament saints were not saved some different way to you and I. They were saved looking forward, we're saved looking back. But it's faith in the same Christ. The Messiah's redeeming work we know transcends time because he's the lamb slain from before the very foundation of the world. And yet literally he had to come into time. And he had to come into human history. To accomplish redemptive, his redemptive plan. And without the literal coming of the son of God. At the incarnation redemption never, never would have been fulfilled. This word incarnation it's not, it's not actually found in the Bible. And so therefore many people bulk at it. But it means really the embodiment of God in human flesh. It means the enfleshment of deity. The Apostle John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the mystery that Paul spoke of. Of God being manifest in the flesh. So the entire history of the world before the incarnation it was moved toward the first advent, the coming of the Messiah into the world. And likewise now we can say since the ascension, every day is taking us closer to that most momentous event when Jesus Christ is coming again in power and in great glory. So the church in all ages has looked for the coming of the blessed Lord Jesus. The messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, they contain wonderful Details, wonderful information about the, the Messiah himself. But what makes Micah 5 and 2 unique is that this is the only one that references his place where he was going to be born. Micah was a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. He ministered primarily, we're told, in Judah. He had to battle against spiritual 
wickedness, political corruption in the land, the abuse of the rich eh, over the poor. And as God's prophet time and time again, he cried out against those injustices. He was called of God to make the nation of Judah face up to its sin. And he faithfully warned the citizens that if they refused to face up to their sin and repent of it, there was nothing but judgment. Oftentimes, preachers are expected to give a soft message, but sometimes there's no soft message. And we live in a day of political corruption. We live in a day of social upheaval. And I think as never before, that message of judgment and justice needs to be declared. His messianic prediction concerning the birthplace of the Messiah, it must have been just like a ray of light in the darkness of the land of his day and of his generation. And he was assuring the people, despite the enemies that surrounded Israel, despite the impending captivity of Judah being carried away into captivity, God's redemptive purposes would be fulfilled. The promised seed would come and he would be born. And now Micah is telling him, I'm even going to tell you where he will be born. In Bethlehem, Ephrata. So this prophecy it not only puts Bethlehem on the map, but it tells us much about the birth of Christ and it tells us much even about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop with you tonight at Micah 5 and 2 and consider the significance of these truths about Christ's birth, which I pray will be a blessing to all of your hearts and lives. So let's consider, first of all, the place of Christ's nativity. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Geographically, if you went to visit uh, Israel way back in those days, you would say, why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? It is significant that the prophecy concerning the birthplace of the Messiah was linked to King David. All of those generations previously. Now we know according to the genealogies that Christ was the only physical descendant of David who shared his birthplace as well as being rightful heir to the throne. Dr. Barrett puts it like this, only David and his ideal son would share an unroyal birth in an unroyal city. There was something unique in the messianic prophecies that allowed the chief priests and the scribes to go to a wicked king Herod and to tell him immediately that Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. He wasn't going to be born in Jerusalem. He had to be born in Bethlehem according to the word of the prophet. So Bethlehem links forever the birthplace of King David and the Messiah but it also highlights something far more significant even than the names that were born there. It highlights for us the importance of the continuity of what we call the Davidic covenant. There was a covenant made with David. We read of those promises, those covenants of promise in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. And those covenants of promise were the covenants that God entered into with his people in the Old Testament scriptures. 
Now they were not different from one another as with regard to their substance or with regard to their nature. But they were all just designed to set forth the covenant of grace in a progressive and in a gradual manner. Each of them was founded on what? Each of them was founded on the grace of God revealing a saviour and a common salvation. And none of them contradicted. The latter ones never contradicted the ones that came before them. And they all found their fulfillment of Christ in the covenant of grace. So what were these covenants of promise? Can I give you a quick overview? We've already thought of the covenant that was made with Adam as the federal head of our whole humanity in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And the announcement, this important announcement that Satan's ultimate defeat was ensured way back with our first parents, our federal head, they'd just fallen into sin and now the Lord steps in and he tells them all, in grace I'm going to intervene and in grace I'm going to make sure that Satan ultimately is defeated. And that's what happened. The next covenant we read of is that covenant that was made with Noah. In Genesis 6 verse 8 and verse 18, the first use of, of the words of the forms uh, that we find there of covenant and grace and God dealt in grace with Noah and his covenantal engagements with Noah were founded on the basis of grace. And then we think of the father of all who believe uh, are the Abrahamic cov covenant in Genesis 15 and verse 18. And it very specifically says, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was nobody. He was a sinner. He was an idolater. But God stepped into his life and God made a binding covenant of him. And God's choice of Abraham was based on what? On grace. On grace alone. And then we have the covenant with Moses. The fourth covenant that's mentioned. And this is referenced for us in Exodus chapter 24 verse 1 to 8. And there we read about the blood of the covenant. And there we read about the book of the covenant. And it's wonderful today we're still talking about the blood of the covenant. We're still talking about the book of the covenant and those whose names are inscribed in that book for all of God's eternity. And we'll come to it just a little bit at the Lord's table. But then we have this covenant with David. In the Old Testament, these covenants, five of them in number, but David's was the last covenant. This institution of the covenant with David, it is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The word covenant doesn't directly appear in the chapter, but the idea, the, the terms of the covenant are clearly presented. David himself recognized this as such when he was reviewing it later on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. And the covenant to which David refers in this verse is the exact same as the covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to take time to look up all of those references. But let me give you the one in 2 Samuel 23 and 5. He's about to depart the scene of time. We know all was not well in his family. But he rejoices that the Lord had made an everlasting covenant whose terms were sure. Do you think God's covenant is sure just because... Everything has to be perfect in your family and my family. If that were the case from the gate of the Garden of Eden, that covenant could never have been made or kept or, or taken forward. So David says, Although my house be not so with God, 
yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. In Second Samuel seven sixteen, we discover that time will never wear out that covenant. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before thee and thine house and thy kingdom. He's saying this to David. This is this perpetual covenant that he's making with David. And he's saying, my, thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. That's an amazing word to give to a mere mortal man. That you're that your reign, your dynasty is going to be perpetuated forever and ever and ever. And twice over the assurance is given. In chapter 23 and 5, we have an indication here of the meaning to the covenant and its promises and that long line of descendants on the throne because David saw the spiritual content of the covenant. Because it's called an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and that which set before him his salvation. So no mere man, I could not enter into a contract with any of you and say that this is forever and ever and ever. That would be impossible because my life is very limited. And even with the best intentions, that covenant will only be as good as long as I live. But David saw in the covenant clear reference to his greater son. And we call his greater son the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. For he only could reign forever. If you want to check that out, you check out Acts chapter 2 verse 25 to 31. The prominent feature of this Davidic covenant was its revelation of the office of Christ as king. He would reign David's reign was soon, soon coming to an end, but his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born of his lineage, would reign forever and ever and ever. We read in First Chronicles 28 and 5, David said, For of all my sons, for the Lord had given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon my son to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. Now the significance of it is that he sat on the throne of the Lord. He sat on the throne of Jehovah. He wasn't sitting on David's throne. This was not a normal succession as we have seen witnessed even in our own land in the past few months. This was something that had a spiritual significance far, far beyond the mere point of history. That we're speaking about here. It's the throne of the Lord. Because Christ was to be the ultimate heir of this throne. He would reign. So this predicted place of the Messiah's birth. It shows us <coughs> the continuity to that covenant. And even though Judah would be taken into captivity for her sin. God's promise to David would stand forever. And this promised Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem according to this ancient prophecy. It's described here in Micah 5 and 2 as little among the thousands of Judah. In all of the, the villages, the towns, the cities of Judah, 
Bethlehem was only a scattering of houses. It was a hamlet. It was a very inauspicious place for the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One would have expected, as the wise men did who came from the east to visit, one would have expected that he would have been born in the royal palaces at Jerusalem with all the pomp and splendor and with all the luxury that would be afforded to him there. But instead he was born in, in a barn, in a cattle shed, in a hamlet that serviced the, the, the flocks of sheep and the shepherds which surrounded it. I find it so amazing that this promised seed would come and would manifest himself in such a place. Bethlehem, the house of bread. He still pleased, brethren and sisters, to dwell with the lowly. In Isaiah 57 and 15, it says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble heart. I dwell with him that is of a contrite and humble part. And it doesn't matter what your background is tonight. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how big your house is. It just matters how humble your heart is. And how contrite your soul is. Because the Lord Jesus has come to dwell with the humble in heart and the contrite in soul. Our brother read to us tonight from Luke 2. And it reminds us afresh of all of those supernatural providential arrangements that brought Mary and Joseph uh, to Bethlehem prior to the birth. This dispute that, uh, arose between the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus and the King of Judea and it led to one of the Herods being disposed, history tells us, and to further subject the, the province and to bring it under subjection. Caesar decreed that Judea should be taxed and before the taxing could be done, a count had to be made of who was in the land. You know, when governments put census figures out, census forms out, there's a purpose in it, brethren and sisters. They want to know how many's in your house, how many they can tax in your house, how much revenue they can raise from it. Don't think it's for any good purpose, uh, as it were, to do you good. Uh, I, the cynic in me says, no, it's just to get more money out of me. And it's just the same here. It was for tax purposes. It was for tax purposes. And Mary, despite her condition, was forced to make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There they had to go. Why? Because of Micah 5 and verse 2. And we see here the, the wise hand of God ordering all things. And I am sure to Joseph and, and to Mary, things in the country seemed just politically chaotic. But God was overruling it all to his glory. And I just stop again. Tonight, and I take great encouragement. Uh, in our own land, uh, politically, things are chaotic. Financially, at the minute, things are more chaotic than they've been in a whole generation. The, poor, the past 40, 50 years have never experienced uh, the financial pressures that this generation is going through. But whatever is happening, either politically, financially, nothing is going to stop the plan of God. Nothing is going to stop the fulfillment of the prophetical scriptures. God comes and God steps into human hearts and God, and God steps into history and God overrules so that his eternal plan 
would be fulfilled. Let that be your encouragement this evening. Secondly, notice with me the royalty of the Messiah. For he's going to be ruler. A ruler in Israel. Most babies that were ever born in Bethlehem, they were going to be shepherds. They were going to be farmers. But this son of these peasants from Nazareth, who was born in the barn, the cattle shed, was going to be a ruler, a king in Israel. We read concerning that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign. Not wonderful. This little baby that was born at Bethlehem, he shall reign. None other than the royal son of God. Jesus very emphatically stated in the very highest court of the land of his day, the court that sentenced him to death, what did he say? That he was born a king. Now no babe ever before or since was born a king. They were crowned kings in their their latter years. But Jesus said, no, I was born a king. He came as the king. David was the first to be born a king in Bethlehem. Christ was the last to be born a king in Bethlehem. Sometimes uh, people ask the, the question, how, how was Christ a ruler in Israel? The Bible tells us he came unto his own and his own received him not. Remember what they said before Pilate. We have no king but Caesar. What were they saying? We're rejecting Christ and we are instead acknowledging the kingship of the Roman military government. What did Jesus say in answer to all of that? John 18.36 My kingdom is not of this world. It's not what we've been learning again and again from the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom that Christ set up is not of this world. It does not go by the laws of this world, by the morality of this world, by the standards of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom that the Lord reigns over. And his kingship is over all of the children of promise, all of the believing children of Abraham. And it's in their hearts that he is crowned king and Lord. <coughs> I was looking up an old hymn. And it goes like this. There was no crown for him of silver or of gold. There was no diadem for him to hold. But blood adorned his brow. And pride at stain he bore. And sinners gave to him the cross he wore. A rugged cross became his throne. His kingdom was in hearts alone. He wrote his love in crimson red and wore the thorns upon his head. What are the characteristics of those that are in his kingdom? Well, they're those who have gladly yielded to his reign. We have a new king in our land. We've been naive to think that everybody has yielded to his reign. He is held up to scrutiny. He is held up to ridicule. He is held up to minute examination. It would seem there's quite a lot in this land that have not yielded to his reign. But if you're part of Christ's kingdom, you'll yield to his reign. You'll bow the knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you'll submit to the crown rights 
of King Jesus, and you'll say, King of my life, I crown thee now. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom of Christ. I want to speak to you just a little bit about the, uh, thirdly, on the eternity of Christ. In our Bible class this morning, we were emphasizing again that Bethlehem was not the beginning for Christ. Because Micah 5 and 2 says, Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He was begotten of his father before all the worlds began. He existed from all eternity. He never had a beginning because he was God. And he never ceased to be divine even during those days of his humiliation. The word was in the beginning and the word was made flesh. John 1 and verse 14 and dwelt amongst us. Deity was incarnate when Christ was born in Bethlehem. It was the eternal Son of God who was born at Bethlehem. One of our articles of faith, number three, it starts off with, we believe in what? The eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our text reminds us that the Messiah's goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. I was interested and looking up this word to find that it's the same that is used in Habakkuk 1 and verse 12 to describe God's eternal nature. And can we not therefore conclude that Micah's usage of the word equally points to God's eternal nature. And the biblical scholars and commentators, they take this to mean Christ's goings forth of old to refer to his work in creation. What a wonderful work. He was in the beginning. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made. He was going forth. He was creating. He was not only going forth to creation. He was preserving all things in his providential arrangements. He preserves all things. Hebrews tells us he upholds all things by the word of his power. He not only created it, he put it in place and he upholds it in its place. And we're in, we're in the place where we're meant to be by God's providential arrangements. Even all of those pre-incarnation appearances. We call them theophanies. Uh, pre, uh, pre-birth appearances of Christ. He was going forth. For this common king. To have been active from everlasting to everlasting. What does it mean? It means he's divine. It means this is deity that we're speaking about here. We cannot speak about the eternality of Christ without speaking about the deity of Christ. And yet the one who was the ancient of days, verse 3 tells us, had to be born of a woman who experienced severe labor pains. That's what we read in verse 3. Here we have deity, here we have humanity. Here we have the two natures of Christ in one person and yet two distinct natures forever. So in his enfleshment, in the incarnation, Christ did not undergo what we call a metamorphosis into a man for the purpose of redemption. The Son of God in his incarnation, I was looking it up, what the wonderful John Brown put it, he assumed a true manhood, a human soul, a true body formed of the substance of the Virgin Mary, not immediately created or sent down from heaven. Charles Wesley wrote some of the loveliest carols that we have. And one of the ones that, it's not in our hymn book, unfortunately, but one of the ones that really struck me most, uh, uh, let heaven and earth combine, 
It says, let heaven and earth combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. The span, that's the span, the baby in the womb. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. He was the ancient of days. And he came from eternity. And he stepped into this scene of time. And all of that divinity manifested in human flesh. And I rejoice he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. And he comes to you tonight. Not as the helpless babe. But he comes to you tonight as the mighty king of kings and Lord of Lords. And he's ready, the Bible says, and he's willing to save all those that will come unto God through Christ Jesus. And I want to ask you tonight, do you know him? Or is he just a child of peasant family who was born in the barn at Bethlehem? Is he nothing more to you than that? Or is he your saviour, your king? And your Lord. What a difference it makes when we can say, Coming for me, for me. Coming for me, for me. I stand back in amazement at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. The precise details that are contained therein concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the one who was prophesied who would come. We know inversely of the prophecies that he is coming. They equally, minutely, will be fulfilled. What a day it will be when that great king comes back again. May the Lord bless these few short thoughts to our hearts and to our lives this evening.